you've probably heard a lot about Bitcoin lately, whether it's on the news, online, or because your weird mate Steve keeps banging on about how much his is worth. There's a lot of noise and information, and it can be hard to know where to begin. Coin Corner cuts through all the confusion. With an easy-to-use site and a friendly customer support team on hand to help, Coin Corner is a quick and easy way to buy Bitcoin in the UK. Visit coincorner.com and enter code FILMBTC at sign up for some free sats or small amounts of Bitcoin to get you started. Coincorner.com The Fix Network Hello and welcome to episode 222, all the twos, of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. It was our absolute delight to sit down with the fantastic writer, producer and director Nick Stagliano, who has made the feature films Home of Angels, the Francis Ford Coppola produced Florentine, uh, which stars Virginia Madsen, Chris Penn, Michael Munston, Hal Holbrook, Jim Belushi and Tom Sizemore. Not a bad cast that at all. Uh, he also produced The 24th Day, Wicked Blood, The Doorman, and he produced, directed and wrote his recently released The Virtuoso. Uh, it's a film noir thriller starring Anthony Hopkins, Anson Mount, Abby Cornish, David Morse, Eddie Marzan and the fantastic Richard Brake, who has starred in two of my movies, Arthur and Merlin and The Dare, both of which are available on Sky Movies and Amazon right now. <laughs> Myself and my co-host Dom Lenoir had such a fantastic chat with Nick all about his career, um, what it's like to direct someone like Anthony Hopkins, not just someone, Anthony Hopkins himself. Uh, he goes deep into how he did that. He also talks about the Francis Ford Coppola connection, how that came about, how important it is uh, to him to develop mood, have a strong visual and tone, and also how he writes his projects. He also talks about films that have inspired him, how he can raise finance and get pre-sales, and also how you can attach a star like Anthony Hopkins to your film and some brilliant techniques of how to do it. That is all coming up for you on this week's episode of The Filmmakers Podcast. Oh, I love talking to Nick. Myself, Dom Lenoir, who's a producer and a director, who's made three feature films, one of which, Winter Ridge, is available now. I'm Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and a producer. And I am in post on The Stranger in Our Bed, um, just doing the score and the sound mix at the moment. But my main news is... The feature that I'm prepping right now is a World War II film for Signature Entertainment being produced by Lucinda Rhodes Takra and Jeet Takra Picture Perfect and it is called Into Enemy Territory. It's been written by Ben Mole and I'm delighted to say I'm attached to direct this film. It's frightening because we're three weeks away from filming. So this morning we were doing uh, lots of VFX talk and how we're going to do the explosions, uh, the SFX work, diving in deep into the schedule as well. Uh, so there's lots going on, not to mention all the casting that is happening right now. Um, so I'll fill you in on, on that as I go along in the next couple of weeks. And when I'm on set, I'll try and do uh, the intros from there as well. I've recorded a load of episodes now, so I've backed them up for you. And there's some amazing people coming up, including the screenwriter of host Gemma Hurley and the fantastic director Ben Wheatley. Oh, yeah, we've got some absolute doozies of episodes for you. Um, but I was contacted by the fantastic uh, Liza van der Smissen, who not only came and third AD'd on The Stranger in Our Bed, but she's a producer and an actress in her own right. And she has set up the Female Film Club. It's an online community for international filmmakers who strive for excellence in all areas of their lives. It's a, it's a kind of new... Uh, network for female identifying filmmakers to create and connect as one international community 
So, if you're interested in that, if you're a female filmmaker, link is in the show notes. Um, even Variety have written a piece about them lately. Um, they've launched a campaign, hashtag FFC Worldwide, and they want to reach filmmakers all across the globe. So, link is in the show notes. Do go have a look. It is uh, www.femalefilmclub.com. Uh, and talking to support if you like this podcast tell your pals that's how we grow it really is important share our pin tweet on twitter if nothing else but if you really want to support and be more part of the team then come join us on our patreon page things are happening we're making lots more behind the scenes uh, videos etc etc and a big shout out to the fantastic marley j monroe who has just joined the current tier as a director Congratulations, Marley. We'll be in touch very soon, but welcome uh, to the Filmmakers Podcast family. You are welcomed with open arms. So if anyone else out there wants to join uh, Marley and the rest of the gang on there, then do. Link is in the show notes to our Patreon. Right, let's get to it. This is our episode with the fantastic Nick Stigliano, myself, Giles Alderson, and my co-host, Dom Lemoire. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this really, really cool chat with Nick. Hey, Nick. And we got to meet your dog as well. Yes, this is uh, Rebel. Rebel's the team mascot. (laughs) (laughs) Rebel without a crew. She was on the bed every day in the freezing cold of the mountains of Pennsylvania, so she feels like she deserves all the post-feature accolades, so I can't say no to her. That's so cute. It's so I love having a dog on set. It does make everyone so much happier when a dog's running around and joining in with everyone and everyone strokes the dog and everyone yeah, I love that. That's cool that you brought your dog to set. Yeah, well, you know, what are, what are we gonna do? She keeps me calm. So Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important to stay calm on set isn't it? Because there's so much going on. Well, you would know. You would know too. We have many hat filmmakers here on this. Yeah, Dom's a filmmaker as well. He's made three features. Yeah, you're in good company and we we like to dive in and talk about the process, as you know, and and just have a little bit more in-depth discussion. It's not a press junket, so it can be as open and free as you like and really get to the nitty-gritty of how difficult filmmaking can be and how amazing it can be at the same time. So that's, that's the plan. That's what we do on the Filmmakers Podcast. And it's a delight to have you on, Nick. It really is. So thank you. In today's world, this is the kind of stuff you need. If, you, if you're not fortunate enough or you didn't decide to take the path of going to film schools or anything like that, where where do you learn? Right. It's Our business is one where when you finally get a chance to direct a motion picture, you're supposed to be at the best quality you've ever been, or you might not get a chance to do it again. In most businesses, you become an apprentice, right? You learn, you you sit there, you go, you, you do a little bit, a little bit, you know, you obviously you can do shorts now and all, but these uh, kind of podcasts, especially yours, that has so much information from across all different kinds of walks of our business. Oh, good on you. And um, let me know if I can help any more than uh, this, but uh, we'll get in as much as you want to. Thank you, Nick. It's nice to, it's nice to have a, it's nice to have a resource where, you can kind of get into the filmmaking side of things a bit more, a bit more sort of realistically so that the people are starting out can actually sort of see the process of, you know, how you got to where you got to um, rather than just sort of hearing anecdotes about, you know, how much fun you've been having on set. We, we sort of go into the, go into the process and, and learn about your film dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We much prefer learning about your film dog, which is love it. I'd love to bring Riley on set. Oh, but uh, sadly, no, it's not going to happen. But look, Virtuoso. Wow. Really lovely, slow burn, insightful, clever, almost like a chamber piece at times, you know, almost like the theatre, you know, the way you got the performances out, the actors, that really wonderful twisting of the I don't know like a wet cloth and you're just wringing out all this wonderful you know performance uh, of your actors I suppose let's you know we can tell everyone what it's about and then dive into that and then we'll come back to your career and your you know of you getting here and directing someone like Anthony Hopkins and getting this amazing cast you have onto this film which is you know Richard Brake being one of them who I've worked with twice and is a legend and is just brilliant um, and so much fun to have around Richard's got the face that could sink a thousand ships (laughs) (laughs) he has indeed and I say that with the greatest admiration yes you dress him one way and he's a he's a high fashion model and you put him another way and he's the face of death it's just brilliant it's brilliant isn't it i think that's why he works so much because he has that wonderful face but also he delivers with his performances as well every time and that's what's 
Well, that's what sets him apart, I think. And that's what makes him this brilliant character actor. And people go, Richard Brake, yeah. And that's my goal. You're correct. So two of my previous movies were plays. Right. The third one, the predecessor to uh, The Virtuoso, Good Day For It, was written like a play. And this was a take of that. This was a continuation of Good Day For It. And I'm always character driven. Character drives the plot and drives the action in my movies as opposed to an action film. You know, we have some action, we have some body count, but uh, it's the characters, right, that separate this. Uh, I just wish more people would have understood that at the beginning because it is clearly a, a slow burn throwback to a vintage 40s noir, including the voiceover, which... Uh, which, is a, it, which is, in a way, a character in itself as well. It is, and it was crucial to it. And when I, when I came up with that, the idea to extend good day for it i contacted james wolf who had written that movie with me as well and i said let's go again i love that concept i love ticking clock thrillers right i mean the way they're set up in the first act it's pretty simple right ding 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 five o'clock in his old diner something's going to happen that's what you believe anyway and so we started there and i said what happens if the guy that walks into the diner in good day for it that character played uh, by Robert Patrick was everybody thought was a bad man that he had to leave town because he was a villain and a criminal and all, but actually he was a good guy that did one bad thing and left to protect his family. And I always said to uh, James, I said, what happens if uh, that guy's really a bad guy and he walks in and he thinks he's going into one simple thing. And all of a sudden it's a whole different, you know, pot of, uh, of adventure there because he doesn't know. And that was the genesis. And then I also wanted, just because I love film noir, I wanted to basically remake one. And I said, I don't want anybody to have a name because I don't want to date it. I don't want anybody to think about it. It's just so, you know, and we'll get into it from the beginning because I created the story as well. So I could start for all, all your screenwriter, uh, you know, viewers. Mm. So we sat there and I looked at my blank board and I was like, you know, I just love index cards and cool. yeah. I start there with a pencil and paper and I said, the virtuoso, well, that's our anti-hero in this case, right? And then we need the femme fatale. We got to have the woman, right? You got to have Barbara Stanwyck or any of these, Veronica Lake or any of those. Yeah. And then I said, and we need the old guy, right? And and I said, the mentor is pretty good because he's like, uh, as I just said, an apprenticeship. So you need, you need the master and you need the apprentice. And that's the way I saw that relationship. And so then I gave that to James and he went off and wrote... Um, the classic three X structure, you know, hundred page script and sent it back to me. And, um, I took it over. I don't know about you, Giles, but I always polish, you know, as a director, once I get what we consider to be the locked script. And, uh, so I took it over and, um, I brought on Fred Fuchs, who was my executive producer, Fred and who ran American Zoetrope for a dozen years. Yeah. And, and Francis and Fred produced my first movie, uh, The Florentine. So that's where I started. So I had that and I hadn't talked to Fred in years, but I sent him that to revise script and he just loved it and wanted to come on board. When we read it together, he's like, you know, I think there's something missing in the first act that would separate this from a standard assassin movie. Right? We've all seen the a boss, right? He said, because you're not making that movie. I know you, you know, and the Florentine was another ensemble drama, 11 characters in search of a plot. So yes. <laughs> if you want to, you should check that one out as an, as actors. I, you know, he said, I think the mentor and the virtuoso need to have a scene together. And for my purposes, of course, I was like, I'm trying to get one of these old legends because I just love to work with them. And, uh, we got to give them a little bit more meat. And so I came up with that cemetery scene that I wrote. Cool. You know, it worked pretty good. And um, clearly it's what Anthony Hopkins responded to because he, he had known a couple guys from Vietnam that he could not forget and never forgot. And uh, wow. he that resonated with him. And, uh, you know, clearly I think it's one of the main reasons he agreed to do the movie. So anyway, that was that was the genesis. It was based off of my uh, my previous movie, Good Day For It. And I just thought, what if the guy walking in was a bad guy? Amazing. I love that, that these old ideas you can have from years ago suddenly come to fruition or a film that you made or a short, whatever it is. And then 10 years later, 20 years later, you go, well, hang on. What about that? Why can't we develop that? And because you've already got the character in your mind, you've got the world in your mind. And it's an easier, I think, sometimes to us as directors, writers to get our heads around. 
something is you've already got the world set out. And, and even as a producer, because, um, mm. uh, you know, we, you know, finance the thing too. So as a producer, yeah. I knew that world specifically. We went back, except for Tony's scenes, which we had to shoot in California due to his schedule. We shot the rest of the movie in the same places that we shot uh, Good Day for it up in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. So in the winter, which you can't, I mean... Yeah, obviously, I'm sure there's that place in the UK that's fantastic, but you have to go there, especially on low budgets where you can't build everything. But we got some really good benefits of naturals. The snow hit us when we needed it, especially the scene with David Morris and Anson in the in the forest at the end. It just it started snowing. Did it really? Oh. Oh, yeah, extreme. It definitely has like an extremely unique kind of visual tone, uh, and and the landscape really does kind of add to that. I mean, was it had you kind of earmarked that kind of setting uh, at the script stage, or is that something that you kind of developed as a, as a director, like looking for that mood at the story stage? Because I had seen it. There's only two exact locations that we used, but the whole the general area was the same um, from from one movie to the next. Which is amazing because, as Dom says, it has a specific tone, a specific look, and it does sort of, you can't help but fall into the world and the colours and the design and the palette, which perhaps we'll come back to, but it really is striking. There's no question about it. It's a striking film and you you really did. It was like, this is the tone, this is what we're going for, and you stuck with it throughout, of course, but some people can get lost on that and go off in different directions, but you didn't. And that's what's so powerful, I think, about this. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's really refreshing to kind of come across like a, a modern revisioning of a noir because... Uh, you know, I, I remember like ten years ago, there, there was a, there was a bunch that came through. David Fincher kind of had his own take on on the the subgenre, uh, and it's kind of something that I haven't seen much of, mm. uh, and I've kind of really missed. Um, and it, it was really nice to see something that had a very deliberate from from the moment it, it started, uh, like a very strong sort of directed visual and, and tone. How, how did you kind of? work that into have such a specific feel first of all thank you and you're correct and that is exactly what we went for and you know if you're a filmmaker not a for hire really that's what you're about right it's your for better or worse it's your vision and you stay with it and you have all these voices coming at you but you just have to hold firm right so frank prinzi shot the movie he went to film school with me he was a couple years older than me so i actually worked for him on the electric department coming up the ranks and he was shooting a lot of television you know high-end television where they have five million dollars for an episode right and i told him this wasn't going to be this (laughs) you know so he had to get the right guys but he loved that script and uh and he, it was key because, you, you know, you have another artist that joins the team. You know, I knew what the look was in my mind, but he's his job to make sure it gets translated to the screen with the technology and the budget that we have. So the one key thing he said to me as, a, as an artist, too, when he finished it, he called me and said, you know, this is cool. man. I don't have a riddle something like this in a long time. But the thing with this character, the virtuoso, is the guy so haunted that I want to depict that. And I'm like, well, haunted. I, you know, haunted never came to my mind necessarily, but it is. And he said, that he's just, once he makes the mistake, you know, I, I saw like remorse, regret, obviously, but I just never put that thing on there. And so we worked with that. And then, of course, so we wanted, we kept with the blue tones, right? Coldness, death. <laughs> For him and the mentor, even in the the mentor's fireplace, he's alone and he's in his sanctuary there. But we have that great blue light coming through the windows, right? That's just kind of rimming him. And it's really shadowy as well. And, And then when he enters the diner and he meets the waitress who, you know, at the time we're hoping is the one ray of sunshine, the tone starts to turn, you know, amber, but not conventional uh, high key, right? It, it still had shadows. We created those pools of light so that they still had drop off and there was still something sinister about even him in his norm, what we would consider his most normal scenes with the waitress are not a standard, well lit, no contrast sequence. So, so we did definitely um, create that. And uh, we used a bunch of old classic. I mean, obviously the Coen brothers work was. Mm-hmm 
uh, instrumental. I mean, so we adapted kind of blue, uh, blood simple mixed with no country in terms of the, the hotel motel stuff is, is a lot out of no yeah, country now. That's great. That's American Southwest, but we did the Northeast version of that. And, you know, Fincher correct. Seven is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Tony Hopkins and I talked about the third man and, uh, all of Michael Powell's work, you know, I mean, those guys and then more modern stuff, the, the Long Good Friday and Layer Cake, you know, I mean, that kind of just raw, but stylized. So it was, it was kind of a, you know, performance, a staged version of that, but exactly what, what we were trying to get. I mean, the, the kind of result of that, that, that sprung to mind when I was watching it is, is almost like this kind of world of, of assassins that he kind of exists in. It's almost like it is this kind of darkness and it kind of sucks everyone into it. And he almost exists in the shadows. And, and I kind of felt that about even the, the kind of places he was visiting, like he kind of, it, it almost felt like he was going there, at, you know, at those kind of darkened times. And it's it's like he doesn't exist in any kind of optimism or, or light because of his line of work. Uh, so it kind of really drew me into his uh, his career, I guess. Well, and then we tried to we tried to you know photograph that because that was Anson's conversations started there. He you know he got the script right away. I had known him ten I had met him ten years prior to this in New York on a, another project of mine. I was so impressed with him because he, he was intelligent. He was theater trained. He's from Tennessee. So he was not a East Coast, West Coast kind of guy. And he had gotten that pre, that other script really well. And so when I was doing the virtuoso, I was like, that's a tough part because you can't have a standard leading Hollywood leading man because a lot of them won't want to play the for the end. We're not going to, I'm sure, talk spoilers, but yeah, you, you guys will get it. But, yes. but also he was like, I just think this guy He's not a sociopath. He's not a psychopath. Yeah. He's almost just a borderline, but he's a virgin. You know, that was his thing. He's virginal. Mm-hmm. And you could clearly see that in the scenes with uh, Abby Cornish. Mm-hmm. Then as the as the movie goes on and he can, starts to continue to grow into a human being. Right. And so we wanted to make sure even in his cabin, which is his sanctuary, he's he's always on guard. Right. When he first hears any noise. But He's that's his world. So even that's um, sparse and kind of desolate. Right. So, you know, we wanted to keep the, that scene throughout the whole movie. Well, I love that. That was something that really worked for me is the fact that the you didn't you didn't necessarily see lots of other people going by in the background. Obviously, you've got the kid and the mother at the beginning with the whole fireball situation, which starts everything moving on the the, the route that he's going for. But most of the time it's not. It's not filled with other people. It's not filled with fancy bits and pieces that we always try and put. It, it was just very beautifully simple. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. You know, it was about the characters. It was about what they're thinking. And it almost reminded me of, you know, I lead it, or in his brain. You know, this might not necessarily be really what's happening, but this is what he sees. Everything's coming through his vision of what he thinks is happening around him in this cold, stark way. Everyone's a villain. Everyone's a baddie. Everyone's a goodie. Who could it be? And that that's what was magic about it. You know, whether you meant that or not, I think that certainly comes across to our audience. And knowing you, you probably did. And I, I think that's that's fantastic. You know, it's really clever. Really clever. Yes and no. You know, the producer and me was like, well, we can't afford too many extras. <laughs> Brilliant. I love the producer. And well. I had eight. I had eight, eight in the whole movie and they didn't make the cut. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it was exactly what you said, the starkest. But uh, but I'll get into re- one of the main reasons why is because w- what you just said, Anson had the same thought. But <laughs> when I got my very first call from Sir Anthony Hopkins after he read the script, he said to me, and then he texted me, which I've kept, and I think I have about a four foot sized um, thing up on my wall. It, I can't show you here. But he said, uh, uh, this guy reminds me of a guy I know. I've known him for 30 years. He was in Vietnam. He, he never talks about it, but you could tell it affected him. He was 19, you know, and he said he always stands rigid. He never looks side to side as if. If he let the world in, he would be destroyed. And he said, that's the way I want to play this guy. Straightforward, not not even turning, right? And I was like, uh, and he's like, Do you, are you okay with that? <laughs> so, of course, I, I was like, yeah, that's that works. That works. <laughs> Anything works, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. 
Do you think I can do it like that? I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay in one position. My head's going to be this way. <laughs> <laughs> and and do, you, do you mind if I change this this line? I'm like, oh, here we go. Because you know, yeah, I wrote that scene. I was very proud. And I'm like, what, what do you want to do? And he's like, well, you 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 know, you say uh, and I would prefer to say the. And I'm like, okay, okay. That was that's the detail. Wow. That that actor brings to the table, and two, you know, took two years to finally get the schedule to work. And the week before, you know, when we had that conversation, he remembered. He's like, "Are are the words the same now? The way we changed them?" I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> but he changed that one word. I yes. sneak them back again. <laughs> yes, you never know. <laughs> we might have made a couple other things. He he had lived that whole last part of that scene, hey. uh, cemetery scene about. Uh, we human beings were just homicidal killing machines. Same thing. He had heard that from another friend of his who was a Vietnam veteran. And and he put that in. And so, of course, I, I loved it. So I took credit for it. But, uh, well, yeah, as we do. It works. Of course we do. So, so, so can, I, can I ask you about the process of, 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 you know, the logistic process for a filmmaker of trying to attach Anthony Hopkins? So you, you mentioned the Vietnam thing. That was That was kind of an angle. Had you research that first um you know and sort of and entered it in the script with mind of getting him on board how do those kind of conversations start uh no listen for you guys because i like you and richard brake speaks highly of child i'm going to tell you and all my friends in the uk exactly what you need to do you have to believe that your material is the greatest on earth i don't care if it necessarily is or not you have to believe it because if you don't believe it no one else will believe it no one's going to go on this ride with you especially and we could talk i've seen a bunch of your podcasts for the fifty thousand dollar filmmaker and worse i get it i was that guy right made super eight movies a long time ago now you have an iphone you could make something if you want to so it's all relative right you brought up fincher right fincher complains when he only has 100 million on mag because he would have liked his 800th take of something right so (laughs) never has enough money (laughs) poor fincher poor fincher he couldn't do the 101st take but we love david his his shooting is exceptional yeah so I sat there. Anson had left CAA when we first started talking, and he went over to UTA, United Talent Agency. And of course, they were happy to get him, and they were looking at his project, and he was very firmly committed to the virtuoso. So I had a conversation with now UTA, and they, you know, in here, usually an independent project gets covered by a separate agent at an agency. So every actor has their own agent, but then the, you know, the agency has a department. And so we had a great guy in New York that I went to see in person because I wanted him to know that this wasn't just another script that may or may not happen. I want him to know that when I say I'm going to shoot a movie, I shoot a movie. Like I said, it might take me five years, seven years, 10 years, but I shoot him. And so I went and I saw him and I said, and he, you know, which forced him to actually read the script instead of saying that you were, maybe they love the script. <laughs> yeah, right? oh. It's amazing. Yeah. All they did, did is read the breakdown for sure. casting. Right. Yeah. And I said, look, I have some money. I have Anson Mount. Abby Cornish was there at the time as well. So we were speaking to her. So I had two of the leads from UTA. And I said, I need this guy to be the mentor. I'm looking at your list of guys over 70. And it was small, but you know, impressive. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't want to waste my time or your time. I'll be happy to make an offer, but you do the work and find out nice. who's going to be even remotely interested. Because, you know, and he's like, okay, give me a few days. And he called me back and he said, you know, don't go to this person. This person's busy for a year. This person won't do independent movies. But it's been known and he made it known that uh, for the right project, if he likes the material and he could spend, it's not a big time commitment. Anthony Hopkins is interested in looking at stuff. And, and that was, he wasn't even on my list. Uh, and, and Harrison Ford was and Michael Douglas was, but, but not <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. And I was like, Really? Yeah. And I was like, oh, he goes, yeah. So I would suggest you just make an offer. And I was too afraid to tell my team. And I didn't even tell Fred Fuchs, who's been, you know, <laughs> produced, you know, a dozen Francis Ford Coppola movies. So he's in that level of guy. And so I take a shot at right before Christmas of um, uh, that, that year, I think it was 17, 16, and uh, made an offer. Three days. Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> nothing. 
<laughs> a month and a half later, Fred Fuchs gives me a call and says, uh, you want to tell me what you did over the holiday? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, not really. <laughs> He's like, well, I just got a call from, uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins agent and, uh, he likes the script. I'm like, really? Wow. I had a headache. It was winter here. I was shoveling snow or something by myself on my couch. It was horrible. The but snow I'm telling in your you, house? Oh my was, God. This is what you guys need to know, right? It yeah. happens to all of us. Yeah. And he said, hey, you'll love this. He said he has three, there's three conditions. And I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he says, Fred says, first, uh, he wants more money. I'm like, of course. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the second one? Uh, his schedule. He was shooting Westworld. He was doing Thor 4. And he was about to, I think, go to London to do two popes, right? So I go, no problem. Because you have to, you know, when you make an offer, you have to at least fabricate start date to make it seem like it's real. Of so course. I think I had put like March or April of that year. <laughs> and so, and so, and I said, what's the third thing? He said, Third thing is he doesn't fly commercial. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You like yeah. And Fred's like, so do we have any idea of what it would cost to get a private? I go, I don't care, Fred. Uh, you yeah. understand what that means? And he's like, No. What do you? I go. That means he's in the movie. Yeah. I go. If the first call you get from a, a high-powered agent at UTA for Anthony Hopkins is he doesn't fly commercial. He wants to do the movie. I was ecstatic. He's like, well, can we afford it? I go, I don't have the money anyway. Can I ask how much it costs to fly someone over a, a, a private jet? I had a million dollars to shoot the whole movie before we started. Yes. So anyway, wow. you know, um, wow. and that and that was the way we got a no, no powerful agent, no powerful lawyer, no direct contact to him. You got to believe in the material first and do as much work as you can on the script, because as much as the writer gets berated and yes. and especially the film writer, you know, writer gets, I rarely even bring them to the set, you know, yeah. you stick them in the corner, give them some cold coffee. The script, when you get to that level of actor, it's always still the material, right? So you just send it and, and hope that the good guys can win a little bit. And in this case, we did. And then we missed the window. Uh, I missed the window when we could have them. Oh. And uh, I had to wait two years. And his agent kept saying, listen, he really liked you. And he really likes the script. Because if we could work it out, but don't wait for us. Because he'd still be interested in doing the project. And so now you have that in your brain. Mm. And you have two 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 hour conversations with the guy, and you have a text that you've blown up to three feet high that says everything. And yeah, you can't. Like, Where now. else do you go? Yeah, of course so you I, I went to uh, now. I'm and also in in uh, at this point in British uh, nobility. So I go to Sir Ben Kingsley. Then I go to Sir Michael Kay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was on this kick, and Patrick Stewart. I think I threw in there. <laughs> Uh, and they were all interested, but yeah. couldn't work it out or they wanted too much money. And, right. and then, you know, I got a call back and said that um, he was available again in uh, early 2019. And I was like, yeah, we can do it this time. And that's how I got him because you just, you know, you have to obviously be at a certain level where some people know you or and your other yes, movies have had some past. kind of coverage. But, yes. but it wasn't anything like a big, big, you know, connection or, uh, you know, my powerful agent called his powerful agent or anything. It was sent them the script, waited, you know, a month and a half, which really, as you know, in our business is not a lot mm. of not time for somebody like that. And he liked it. And that was how we got him. That is amazing. Once you get someone incredible like that attached to a project, is it a case of you kind of have to wait until almost you get to set or, or did you, were you able to kind of go into much prep and have many conversations with him in, in advance no i had two um i had a, the, the original call which was two years prior which is where he told me this whole thing about having known this person that he wanted to base the guy on and then he sent me this text that was he dissected the whole scene in the part and then it was um nothing until about three months then before we started again because we had the, the same conversation and thankfully, you know, pretty much remembered everything and picked up 
where it was. And then I met him the week uh, before because I had gone to California then and we had met uh, with his agent uh, at his hotel just to meet and greet. And then uh, wardrobe fitting the next day. And then he came up to, uh, we shot near in Santa Barbara County, you know, about 90 minutes north of LA. And he came up a few days early. So <laughs> it was fantastic. He met his assistant, came up just to hang out and get to know that area and the cemetery. Of course, he wanted to see the cemetery. So we went there with Anson the day before. But um, that was it. Uh, once I had Anthony Hopkins, believe me, as a lot of people came after me going, well, if we had a bigger name for the lead, if we had a bigger name for the mm-hmm. female lead, now you have Anthony. I'm like, you're talking to the wrong guy. Yes. You know, I don't work like that. Um, I'll do what it takes to make this movie the way it's supposed to be made because it's going to sound cheesy for you know everybody but the movies are the star of my movie Mm. yeah and and that's the way it's got to be right i mean it's like the old john ford stock company right you see the same you see john wayne but then you see ward bond and harry carey and all these guys and you see him and all your guy richie does it now too Mm. with all his guys right and and i said that's that's what makes the movie the 43 minutes in to this movie David Morse shows up and yeah, you're like, what is that guy? Wait a minute. Is that guy, is that the guy from the green it's mile? David Morse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you would appreciate this as, as an actor. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, we didn't have a lot of time. Like I said, there was never like a week before where everybody got together. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen on low budget movies or at least not, not the one. I haven't been lucky yeah. enough, but yeah. when we got to the first diner scene where everybody worked you know i had six of the seven cast at one time and eddie saw david morse and david morse saw eddie marzen and to me i was beaming because i consider one the best american character actor Mm -hmm. in the world and i go and eddie marzen to me is the best character actor in the world and um, and they both looked at it. It, it was like you know I, I wouldn't say two rams on the, on the side of a mountain because they didn't butt heads, but they both like I'm not even sure they knew each other's name. <laughs> they both were like, "Wow, that guy's in the movie." He's like, "This guy's a great actor." And David, they went over and hugged. I got a great picture to tell them with their arms around each other. And I, I was so you know to me that's like yeah uh, that's a win, right? That so a, that's what makes it worthwhile. Totally. And everyone else is going that's. Richard Brake from the dare. <laughs> and, and, and I, of course, know all three of them because, you know, Richard Brake, which is Rob Zombie movie yeah. the years, just that stuff keeps you, you know, going back to another guy I borrowed from a guy named Alfred Hitchcock. You might have heard of him. Yeah. Uh, Freddy. Sus- the suspense, not the, the no, not the noir aspect, right? But the suspense. And in fact, the MacGuffin, mm. you know, White Rivers is nothing but the MacGuffin. That's what you you should have seen from that. The suspense of what what is White Rivers, right? To go, 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 go. And so those guys got it all, right? They understood. And then the suspense from the Hitchcockian point of view of, of focusing on the details. So when you see Richard Brake, Eddie Marsden, and then David Morse shows up 40 mm-hmm. some minutes into the movie, you're like, what is going on now? Yeah. And then and then when he goes to each one, it's not just plot, it's plot and misdirection and mm. continued suspense, right? Because it continues to keep you off of the next person, right? It also does a very good job of of completely throwing your attention away from who's really behind it. And and, be, and because of the uh actors were so strong that you had you had to think that there was going to be more to it. I mean, mm. it's it's I don't think it's a cheat. I don't think it's a bad thing on my part. I think it's classic misdirection, right? Speaking of misdirection, uh, Robbie's calling me. Hang on, hang on one sec. Hey, Robbie. Giles, I need to speak to you. Listen, I've been getting some shit for you knowing the answers for who invented Bitcoin and me not. Robbie, I'm in the middle of recording an ep here. Nick and Dom are waiting uncomfortably. No, 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 no. I want to prove live on air that you must have been editing those answers in. Stopping the tape and inserting the correct answers. What? Yeah, yeah, come on. Cheating, etc. I, I, how... I know what your game is. How day besmirch my beautiful... Okay, okay, okay. Name. Okay. So this is my ultimatum to you, live on air. You have okay. to tell me who is Satoshi Nakamoto. Oh, come on, you've put me right on the spot. Don't try and wheedle out of this. Tell me. Well, if you insist, I further delve into the subject matter of who the founder of Bitcoin actually is. 
it leads us into an even more mysterious place as to the origins of the name in Japanese. It does? I mean, wait, wait, you've not actually learned Japanese for this. I have! Here you go. Okay, in Japanese, the name roughly translates into Satoshi, clear-thinking, quick-witted, wise. Naka, inside or relationship. Moto, the foundation. Satoshi, Naka, Moto. I mean, I'm gobsmacked, Jars. I I see you in a whole new light. And do you take back the besmirching of my name? I do entirely. I mean, I was completely wrong. In retrospect, I, I was the idiot in this case. You are totally wrong. If you do want Bitcoin though, Robbie, sign up with Coin Corner now and use the voucher code FILMBTC to get your Bitcoin journey started with some free sats. Ah, link in the show notes. Indeed it is. So on that note, Robbie, sayonara. Yeah, show off. All right, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can really get into it with those scenes then. And let's break down those scenes, how you work with your actors, because you have long, like say, nine page scene between Anthony and, um, you know, uh, Anson there. This full, full on. How do you break that down in terms of filming it and in, in terms of directing them? What do you want from it? The ups and downs of it. Do you want to talk us through your process of directing amazing actors in long scenes like that? <laughs> I need to be let down and uh, maybe we'll, we'll work together and you know, <laughs> you'll love me because yeah. my work, um, I learned on, on my, on the floor team, I had Francis telling me things mm. and then I had uh, Chris Penn was in that movie mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, a bunch of people, less is more, right? It, a motion picture directing to me, less is more. You don't have to, when I give advice, I'm like, you don't have to be the guy yelling all the time and showing everybody else that you know everything that you know. You need to know everything that you need to know because it's, everybody's going to be asking you every single minute of the day, what's this color? What's it? You know, everything. But you don't need to go banting about. And so with that scene specifically, which was after all that time and after waiting two and a half years, day one, scene one. Mm-hmm. That's how I got and I hadn't directed in 10 years. So, wow. Why not start? <laughs> Jump in. <laughs> yeah. The water's freezing. <laughs> so, so the day before we, we had that, uh, that I knew we needed to have a rehearsal for. And um, we just, uh, you know, I just let them did nothing. You know, me, the DP, uh, the first AD and Tony and uh, Anson in the cemetery. And uh, just let them go. I'm like, don't. Don't talk. Don't, you know, tell my guys. I'm like, don't start blocking. Don't start thinking about anything. Just let them go. And so for probably an hour, it was just the two of them walking back and forth. And Tony was not, obviously, I was concerned in general about anybody knowing and not, you know, nine page, basically monologue. Anson has a couple lines. Yeah, but it's Tony's. Hopkins there's, is a, there's a scene in the uh, Florentine that uh, the great uh, American actor who unfortunately just passed away, Hal Holbrook, mm. uh, did and had a four page monologue. And all I did was dolly it from a, a wide shot in a bar, him and Michael Madsen, to an extreme close up by the time I got to the end. I showed Tony that scene in the Florentine, a creep in. And I said, Listen, this is four minutes. You got nine pages. I don't think I can do that. But to me, it's the simplicity of that kind of coverage is the actor. Just let the actor tell the story. If he doesn't, if he doesn't need any help, I don't need to do any tricks, any gimmicks or anything. And he's like, no, I can do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so the day before, he was wow. not focused on the dialogue too much. And I was a little concerned because he was kind of throwing just lines out going, I think I, maybe I think I should approach after this and Anson's, you know, Anson, of course, was just thrilled. He yeah. was, he was almost as he's got a great, he's got a great scene for a showreel. Basically. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he was, yes, he was like, as long as you get it, I'm going to, I mean, believe me that night he couldn't go on. We had to go for, we might've had a cocktail or two yeah, yeah, after that. But anyway, so, <laughs> so that was it. I mean, two cameras, yeah. which I only usually shoot one. Mm-hmm. We did that seen two two takes wide and tight and the the wide camera was on a super techno crane yeah you've got a techno crane moving in haven't you and floating yeah we just moved in 
right? And we did it twice. And then until he left the original uh, tombstone and, and approached him. And then we did pretty much classic because he still had about three minutes to go, uh, you know, with the second part of that, which is equally crucial. I mean, when he gets close to Hanson, it's the most important part of the movie. Uh, that look when he looks in his eyes right yeah, before he looks he down says, and then looks up <sighs> when he says next time answer your phone it's not just a throwaway line if you would have answered your phone i wouldn't have had to come here and seen in person and look this close into your eyes to know that you're broken right it would have been a phone call where you couldn't have seen that he looked into his soul and he saw that his machine was broken yeah. And I, that's the one piece of direction I had to give Anthony Hopkins and, and Anson Mount always brings it up in interviews. He's like, I knew it, you know, wasn't Nick's first rodeo and, you know, I felt strong, but when I saw him direct Anthony Hopkins on day one, just very quietly and respectfully, I knew I was in good hands. And I just wow. said, Tony, I think you need to remember what's going on here, right? You're, you're evaluating, you're, you're about to set the rest of the plot in motion mm-hmm. because of what you perceive here. And that was the, the amount of direction I gave to the guy like that. Wow. That was that process. And then David Morris showed up the day before, asked a couple of questions about his character because it was difficult. You know, he he's like, how do you want me to play this? You know, am I playing it like I'm a dep you know, I'm the deputy mm-hmm. or am I playing it like I'm I'm a killer? Killer on acting like a deputy. Yeah. And and Abby had the same question. She's like, I can't play her like I'm a killer playing a good girl. I can play her for this half of the movie Mm. as the waitress. Mm -hmm. And I was like, sure, absolutely. Because we (laughs) need to believe our, as you said before, our vision is just what he sees. Right. And so he needs to see that you're just an innocent, right? Mm. Because in this whole world of his, where everybody just look, take one look at Richard Brake's face and Eddie Martin. You go, those guys aren't innocent. And then David Morris comes in just this hulking guy with a badge. Mm. So he's, he's somebody I've Something's got to, up to him. watch yeah. out for. Right. So you're worried about that. Yeah. But with her, you, you know, there's hope. So really no, no rehearsals for anybody else. Anson again, three days in a hotel room, breaking down the script and breaking down his character. And with Anthony, a uh, one day walk through beforehand. But um, I wish I, you know, I, I long for the day when I can get on my ensembles, everybody together for like just three days beforehand. Yeah, amazing. Right? Now, Coppola does that, doesn't he? He did it with Dracula and he did it with one of his other films before that, where they got them all together in his vi- vineyard, wherever the fuck it was. <laughs> yeah. And they're all sat got a vineyard. Just, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's the yes. secret. Yeah. That's the way to do it. You mentioned earlier about you had originally maybe a million uh, to make this. Obviously the budget might've gone up with Anthony and we'll come back to that in a second. But first of all, where that, that million, where, where did it come from? Is this something that your production company have been developing for years? And it'd be really interesting to know for our, uh, listeners, you know, where you would find budgets for a film like this and where you even thought we could do this for a million. Uh, yes, it can't, it can't. I do have a couple of equity friends that like my work and had it's a little bit of money financiers, yeah, uh, private yeah. financing, but yeah. then, um, it was going to be a classic tax credit, soft money mm-hmm. combination, um, pre-sales and equity. Uh, I prefer to do things that way because I still, I do think it gives you the best control as a filmmaker. Yes. Um, if, if you can do it, obviously the problem is, in, especially now, pre-sales are more difficult for the lower budgeted movies because everybody either wants the big, big, big movies or the mm-hmm. big star. And there's, mm-hmm. we all know there's, uh, I don't know, 10 actors that fin- pre-finance movies now, yep. maybe. And there yeah. are four of them are named Chris. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, you're all in the mix with everybody trying to muddle it together. So my yeah. goal was like maybe half a million in cash, maybe 200,000 soft money. I, Pennsylvania has a good tax credit. I, I grew up here. So I shot three movies here. So I, was I think, isn't it? Or something 25%, but 25%. it's above and below the line. Great. Uh, great. Which is great. Um, that was one thing. And then I was hoping that I could get a company that would just on the genre alone, be able to get me 20 to 30 or even 20%. And I could gap to maybe 10%. So okay. that was the original plan. I see, I, you know, one of the companies I talked to, you worked, I guess, sold your movie, uh, Merlin. Um, yeah. And so I like that guy and uh, we had a conversation, but I ended up going with a good company out of Canada and um, 
you know, it, it ended up that model ended up working, except I, I had to bring in more equity because right. Anthony wasn't the star. You know, we never misrepresented ourselves. No, it says with Anthony. He yes. wasn't doing a one day cameo, uh, no. but he wasn't the star of the movie. It wasn't two popes or the father. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. You've been very honest about that mm -hmm. saying, look, it's with Anthony Hopkins, which is great. It's good to do that. Did, did that make a difference to the budget then when obviously Anthony says, yes, I'm doing it. And here's my fee, you know, it's gone up a bit. Uh, did you then manage to rework the budget? Your accent's terrible, guys. <laughs> I think, I think it's lovely. I think Anthony would have a great time listening to me. The good and the bad is yes. So as a producer now, you're like, the director's ecstatic. Because uh, yeah. you, you, you've just, when I started telling people that, they, even like my closest friends were like, they thought I was, I was lying to them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, really? I, because you, I couldn't even say it because I, I didn't trust it. You know, it took, you know, it then took four or five months for the paperwork, right? For the contract to mm. finally get yeah. signed. So I, I wasn't telling anybody. I didn't tell the sales company. I said, you cannot use this information because as an independent filmmaker too, I'm still making a low budget movie. Yeah. It just, the above the line as we all know nothing's fair. I get it. You, uh, us as filmmakers, you got to get it over that right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> nothing's fair. You know, you should get a million dollars. Nobody can get any of you a million dollars. My, my quotes X, I never got paid X, but I, it's my quote, right? Sure. So sure. if, if somebody calls me tomorrow and has a great script and they want to shoot for half a million dollars and I like it, I'm going to go and shoot because that's what real artists do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. So you were like, well, now we have to address this. And the biggest issue, really, it was you couldn't hide anymore because ultimately you had to use that information to get to the position where you, you could get the bare minimum to, mm. to shoot. And as you know, it's not just the salary, right? It's everything goes up then, right? Everything. The size of the crew, the quality of the rest of the crew, even yeah. the hair, makeup, mm -hmm. wardrobe person has to be at a certain level because you don't want to frighten your cast that's used to a certain level, even though nobody in the movie was at any pretentiousness mm -hmm. about them or anything. In fact, Tony, <laughs> we had, you know, contractually, we had a fifth wheel pop-up trailer with, uh, you know, <laughs> X, Y, and Z in it. And yep. Anton, of course, had a favorite nations with Tony. So as a producer, my budget alone right there went up yeah, to forty thousand dollars. You could have made a movie. One of your friends could have made a movie. Right? Could have made a movie on that trip. There, yeah. I'm yeah. so proud. We have Teamsters dragged the thing from Los Angeles up uh, an hour and a half. Uh, you know, at time and a half <laughs> to get to the you know to the to the little outskirts of Santa Barbara. Park the two things. I'm so proud. I go. I go look at them. There. Great, I could live there for the rest of my life. <laughs> we, I get Tony shows up. I, I show him. He says, "This, this is for me." Like, yes. Oh, I, I like your sister's house. I'd like to stay there. <gasps> no. Like uh, what? Um, he goes, "Yeah, we we have a hotel room." And he goes, "But I, I don't like these things. I never used them." Um, I like your, your sister's uh, house. We, my sister has a dog, a different dog. And so, the agent, isn't it? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. And so then Anson, of course, feeling horrible, is like, well, I'm not going to use mine then if Tony's not going to use yeah. his. So, <laughs> so I, I went in there every day. Oh, you were like, this is my new office, everyone. The beginning and the end of every day, I would just step in and go, nice. This is I paid for this. <laughs> I paid for this. Not only did I pay for it, I paid for the Teamsters who are sitting there. And, you know, that's, that's how it works here, unfortunately. So, so those things jacked it up you know, universally, but mm -hmm. you know, on the plus side, now you have David Morris, Eddie Mars and Richard Brake. So th those aren't scale players, no. you know, yeah, Abby Cornish. Yeah. Yeah. And Abby, you know, of course, Abby Cornish. So, mm -hmm. so the above the line, you know, was what it was. And, but then the below line had to go up to match, you know, at least at that level. And so, yeah, could I, you know, would I go back? Cause good day for it. If you go watch that movie now, I'll tell you that budget. I'm not really going to discuss the virtuosis budget, but there, sure. I made that movie with 11 people, including Lance Hendrickson, Hal Holbrook, Robert Patrick, uh, Christian Kane, Kathy Baker for $625,000 American on the SAG limited uh, low budget contract. Right. Right. The greatest time. You know, good crew, 30 people, probably all nice, young, not non-union kids like we were mm -hmm. working, you know, trying to do their job uh, with a DP that was experienced, the same production designer and, uh, you know, uh, a, you know, a crew that 
just did enough for what we needed. And we shot that in Super 16 wow. uh, on film. Wow. And then this movie comes and it's just bigger and more expensive. And, um, you know, that the, the cast budget was, I'll just say, two, three times that. Right. So just there. But that is what it is. You know, I mean, and the reason everybody's interested. Exactly. Right? Well, that gets you the more sales, doesn't it? Yeah. That name suddenly puts it. Well, now we can do this with it. And Lionsgate gets super happy because now they've got a massive name attached, mm. whether they were on at that point or not. I imagine you were talking to people like Lionsgate before even he was attached. And now suddenly he's interested and wow. Okay. Well, this changes a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's that, you know, as a, again, as now I'm talking as the producer, mm. Because I know a lot of you know a lot of your listeners will wonder where that balance is, right? Yes. And I'm sure you do too. You go, you know, how much is the right number? Because you don't mind paying for the right thing, right? You know, it's just when you get taken advantage of on your side, or when you get forced into a position where you go, that's not going on screen at all, mm-hmm. and. You know, that's really hard for us because, you know, again, for half a million more dollars, I can make a whole nother movie. I, I have, I don't necessarily want to anymore in my, in my, in my you know, lot in life and my age, but I mean, I would if the right thing came because I have the skill set that I can still do that. You know, David Fincher would have a heart attack. That's not his <laughs> craft service budget. But, yeah, uh, it's one day craft services for him. Go watch Seven again if you want or that thing. Yeah, blown away. Well, I mean, and Mank, not to mention that, but, you know, some people don't have, can't live in both worlds, right? Uh, You can, I'm sure you can. You could probably do do what you're talking about. You could go shoot 50 or 100 grand or or you'd love love that 5 million, Mm -hmm. but it's it's still the same amount of work for us. I'm still there 16, 18 hours waiting. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, I mean, one of the... One of the things I, I really liked about you, the way that you sort of approached this, even when it sort of started out as a, as a low budget project is, you know, sometimes you're sort of forced into the position of, well, we've, we've only got, you know, say a million. Um, so we've got to keep things very contained. But you you thought outside the box, you set a mood, you found a location that looks really unique and cinematic. And off the back of that and the, you know, the the, the story, you managed to attach it and, and create what was originally like a very low budget idea into something that A-listers were were, were interested in. And, and you've assembled this this cast almost off the back of sticking to your guns in a way um, to that idea of, of, you know, really focusing on the story and having an idea for it. Yeah. I'm, now this advice gets, you know, you can misread this too. I mean, I always say this and, and it's not arrogant, it's not aggressive, but you know, I, I usually make my movies for an audience of one. It has to be me. You know, you have to start there and you do what I said before. Like I was respectful when I went to UTA and said, do, you know, do some research. You know, we are, we're all want the same thing. That's, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows coming up, there's so many roadblocks. You're like, oh my God, I'm never going to get this script or never going to get this actor, never going to get this financing from this company. If if that's your attitude, get out. You're in my way you're in, I'm, and you're in your way, right? Yeah. And so get out. You don't belong here. It's hard. But if you if you're respectful and you go, I believe, like I said, I believe it was a great read. I worked three years cleaning that thing up. It wasn't by accident, right? Uh, and then right in that cemetery scene, you know, just was a, a month alone, right? So, it, it, you know, it was work to get it to that position. But I had a feeling it was going to go. But uh, but that's what separated things in the independent world. That's why I wanted that guy, that first agent, to meet me, right? And why I flew to Calgary so Anson would re-meet me. When you mm-hmm. see me in person, you understand the depth of the conviction. And so that, it, to me, is everything that separates us. Because, you know, if you go out there to Hollywood and you're on a big agent's office, there's the, the piles. I don't know if any of your readers know <laughs> yeah. this, but I'll, I'll give them a little bit Please. of this. Yeah. Set, which will frighten you, but inspire you. <laughs> this is any guy, in, uh, not even the most powerful. There's a list of scripts here. And I go, oh, what's that? And they go, oh, that's the week. That's our weekend read. These are go movies, usually from studios. And you're like, well, you know, you know you're talking about the same guy, the same one client or something. And I go, what's that? Oh, well, that's the consider, right? That came recommended. Mm-hmm. And I go, what's that? And this piles up up here and there you go oh those are those are the not financed uh, not 100 you know that we have to look through because of something yeah 
and you get your eyes in, and then you realize it's not personal, it's a numbers game. Right? And once you can get that, you know, wrap that around you at the beginning, you know, early on, uh, I told the story with the Florentine. I had Francis, I had Chris Penn, Mike Madsen, Tom Seidler. This is right at their peak. Right? Yes. This is right after Saving Private Ryan, yes. True Romance, Reservoir Dogs, you, you know, a couple of years afterwards. I sent out 50, you know, emails, faxes at the time. You know, they were still getting used. 48 rejections right off the bat. And like, how's that possible, yeah. right? And yeah. two companies that were interested. And then I went to see the one company and weren't that weren't big players at the time. And I went to see them in, in Sunset Boulevard at their offices. And they had a room that was their, their conference room. And it and there must have been a thousand scripts all on the side, you know, on the spine. So you mm -hmm. could read which one it was. And I'm like, what is that? And she goes, Oh, those are just submissions we got. And you're like, wow. Um, <laughs> so then you realize that both how daunting the task it is, but then just the fact that you need to be the one that separates you to get mm. through. Right. And so to, you know, to all your young listeners, just, you know, get your project, get it in the best possible shape first. Right. Absolutely. Send it to some people you trust, not all related to you. Mm -hmm. And then listen. And then when you decide, go respectfully to a place. You know, if you send the script out, call, if you're a writer trying to get an agent, right? Send the script, wait a week, send the follow-up, try again, right? Go to the next person. If you're trying to get financing, like we said, Giles, you and I probably will compete, right? When our next project, you're going to go to, you know, all the great sales companies. You know, I'd love to do this with some of the UK ones. I've been yeah. talking to them for years and um. Mm -hmm. You're going to go, here's my next one. Uh, it's, it's this thing. And, you know, I'm looking to talk to this actor, this actor, and, and they're going to say, okay, we're interested. We're not interested. We just did this. Um, mm -hmm. You need a bigger name, you know, or, or how much are you looking for? And so that's just the way it goes. So we just have to keep pursuing and you know, always keep moving forward. Uh, when you hit a wall, realize why, and then go to the next uh, avenue you know so i mean that's what we did i mean i'd never in my wildest imagination having said all that thought anthony hopkins like i said i think harrison ford had just crashed his jet his plane you know right, as he does like oh, harrison <laughs> <laughs> and this is what i thought i thought harrison ford he's in the hospital he's in Perfect. bed yeah so i've got a scene where mostly he sits behind a desk yeah i'm like maybe the guy will need a million so dollars to pay for yeah, exactly. He could either fix his plane or he could pay for his hospital bills. I don't know what the SAG insurance is. <laughs> and, and when it came back that, you know, <laughs> don't don't waste your time. But Anthony Hopkins has made it known internally. So you had a good intention at the yes. start and it yeah. took you to a little bit different way, which worked out fantastic because, I mean, the guy, you know, it's the greatest experience of my life. Right. And now you have it on. Yeah film forever and forever. i'll hold that cemetery scene up it's great it's really good mm. it re i love the moment when he comes forward and just look his eyes go up and he, you know answer your phone it's it's great the reason i look for theater trained actors is not just just a you know slightly better um, like attitude because if you worked in a small theater in a black box even on you know on broadway on the west mm -hmm. end you go you knew Forget just the fact that you know dialogue and you know how to memorize dialogue, but you know inherently where you need to be for your entire performance. Yes. And so yep. when you come to me on the set of a motion picture that usually shoots out of sequence, mm -hmm. even though I try as often as possible, totally. and usually, you know, it's the 12th hour and everybody's tired and the coffee's you know, cold. cold and the donuts are stale and, and uh, I don't know, the fish and chips are horrible or something, you know, that, that actor knows, still knows. And they just need that little piece from me to remind them where they are in this place yes. within the whole story. And so I take great comfort in that because I'm not completely petrified or worried. I know that they have the training and that they will get you know, and then you do a take or two. And then if you don't see exactly where you need, that's what you need to direct. Right. Mm -hmm. But usually, you know, any of these guys, like I said, the, the, the direction was 
I think I do like with, with Richard, you know, handsome Johnny. He's like, I see this guy like being like an rock, old rock and roller, you know, he's mm-hmm. called handsome Johnny, but I don't want to really be, I go, well, it's, it's could work either way. It's a pun or, you know, I made him that character because he could be the ugliest guy in the room or he could have been handsome Johnny because he was a stunningly exactly. you know, handsome guy. Yeah. Right. And I said, you are perfect because of what we said before you work both ways. And so he comes like that, you know, um, with the long hair, with that kind of rock and rollish fit, you know, fifties leather vibe. And I'm like, that's perfect because that's what he decided. And it was within the world that I wanted to live in. And it, and it's what he focused on, right? And Eddie, and I think this guy's a degenerate gambler in his spare time. Mm-hmm. That's why he, we we gave him the business to have, he's like reading a racing sheet with a, a pencil and bifocals, right? That was just on the spot because he brought that, you know, in, you know internal kind of composition to that part, right? So for me, I look great and I did very little. Yeah. It's it's so wonderful, isn't it? And that theatre train does make a difference, and that's amazing. Uh, Nick Segliano, we could talk to you forever. This is brilliant. There's so much amazing information in there, and uh, so much advice for young filmmakers. Normally, at the end, I go, "Have you got any advice?" I'm like, "I don't need to ask that. You've given <laughs> loads of amazing advice." Um, the Virtuoso is out now uh, in the UK and in America on video on demand and uh, on DVD, uh, and the uh, behind the scenes audio commentary commentary. Commentary. Uh, commentary uh, with Nick. So definitely worth catching the DVD. And honestly, the, the scenes that Nick has written in this film are mind-blowing. The performances are mind-blowing. And if you love your slow burning, wonderful throwback to noir cinema, you'll love this movie. Are you on social media, Nick? Can people find you and say thank you? And We can. You- I'm, uh, NAS Productions, my company's on Instagram, and we have a website, nas-productions.com. N-A-Z-Z. Yeah. Correct. Cool. Great. Uh, please do that. Thanks very much for having me. Good luck with everything. No, it's been our pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Dom, where can I find you? Director Dom Lenoir, Instagram, Twitter, etc. You can follow us at Filmmakers Pod, me at Giles Alderson, or if you want a whole back catalogue of podcasts, filmmakerspodcast.com. Go to the search bar and put in directors or screenwriters or editors, whatever you like, and you will find them all. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. I've loved it. And you can go out there and make your film too. And if you're lucky, you might get Anthony Hopkins in your film as well, if you have an amazing script, as Nick did. If you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send that elevator back down to help others just as nick has done we will see you all next tuesday uh go out there make your films make it happen nick stagliano thank you thank you you're welcome thank you